Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. We'll talk a little bit about a passing in the QSR industry in a few moments, as well as a new up-and-coming semi-QSR company named Portillo's as they take over and expand into Minnesota. But first, the big news from this week, Chipotle has made executive changes as well as changes to their board. As Monty Moran, their previous co-CEO, has resigned, leaving Steve Ells, Chipotle's founder, alone at the helm. Additionally, they've added four board seats in part to attempt to appease their largest investor, Pershing Square Capital Investments. They lose the board seat that Monty Moran vacates, but they gain four more board members that all look like they can bring something to the table for Chipotle. Absolutely. So this brings their total number of board seats up to 12. So we were at nine down one plus four. So that equals 12. And as you mentioned, there's going to be these four additions and they all bring something to the table here. Four new members, one coming from a media and communications background through Liberty Global and Liberty Media. So this is really tying into the idea that they might have some extensions there with some new advertising campaigns. They spoke previously a couple months ago about potentially getting into some conventional advertising, potentially going to more television advertisements, more mainstream advertising. And this is a different approach to what they had done in the past. You've seen some short films by Chipotle and a lot of social media push as well. So again, a lot of changes here, but you mentioned Steve Ells taking on the full-time position of CEO now, no longer a co-CEO. He was the founder of Chipotle, founding Chipotle in 1993. Monty Moran had joined the company in March of 2005 as the president and chief operating officer. And a lot of analysts were speculating that he had a, a large part to do with them having their IPO in 2006. So he's been an integral part of the operations side of things. And in January of 2009 is when he was promoted to that co-CEO position. So with this resignation, you are going to see a lot of changes, not only in the media landscape and how they approach the media and advertising realm of their company, but also they're hiring someone who's general counsel for another company. And then also two other board members have a deep understanding of the conventional QSR industry having come from McDonald's. So we're going to talk a little bit about those two additions with Ali Namvar. He's a partner at Pershing Square Capital, and he's played an integral role with the company investments in McDonald's and Wendy's. So whenever you're talking about a conventional quick service restaurant, really what comes to mind, what is top of mind, at least domestically, is McDonald's and Wendy's. So quite a bit of experience there, understanding the business in and out from an investment perspective. And then also joining the board, you have Matthew Paul, who was a senior vice president and CFO at McDonald's between 2001 and 2008. We should say that Pershing Square owned McDonald's shares until about 2006. So a lot of integration here, and you're seeing that Chipotle has had continued problems with getting customers to come to their stores, despite having been done with all of the food service woes back in February of this year. 
And we should reiterate for the listeners that Chipotle will begin to go up against more favorable comps as early as this next quarterly release. It was the fourth quarter of 2015 where these E. coli incidents really began to impact both top and bottom line for the fast casual chain. If we go back to the fourth quarter of 2015, comparable restaurant sales decreased by 14.6%. And to that stage of the year, their comps had actually been positive for fiscal year 2015. So if we look ahead now to a likely February release for their fourth quarter fiscal year 2016 results as well as their full year 2016 results, I think you may begin to see some positives in comparable store sales just organically because they've been able to overcome this E. coli outbreak and additionally because they were able to win some customers back we do know based on the data from their Chiptopia program and also the introduction of chorizo as an additional protein on their menu so there are positives at the same time Pershing Square Capital investments seem like they felt and Bill Ackman felt that the changes perhaps weren't coming soon enough to try and drive growth and this is reflected a little bit in Steve Els's recent comments he mentioned that some of the stores are beginning to produce inconsistent results that the throughput is suffering at some of these stores and despite the fact that when you look at Chipotle you think quality ingredients their perception of quality has begun to wane a little bit and part of this certainly is due to the E. coli crisis but part of it is just due to a natural aging of the company as they're beginning to take on more and more competitors and more people are beginning to stock their restaurants with natural foods with high level ingredients in much the same manner as Chipotle has over the last decade since they became a publicly traded company. So I'm looking ahead more to their fourth quarter results that will come out in likely February, as we mentioned, early February, late January is where they're targeting as far as that earnings release. And at this point, it's a little bit too late in the quarter for these announcements to make much of a difference on the consumer level. But in the future, you know that these board members, now that they make up a full third of the board overall, are going to have some impact on the direction at Chipotle. And Leighton, there are a number of interesting qualifiers for Pershing Square to have these members on Chipotle's board. Yeah, that's absolutely right. This is really a give and take here. So the agreement is that if Chipotle ownership within Pershing Square falls below 5%, Namvar will resign from the restaurant chain's board. And Pershing Square also said that they are going to invest no more than 12.9% in the next two years in the company. So if they see a really big upside for Chipotle, they are limited there at that 12.9% figure. We should say that currently Pershing Square, as of September of this year has a 9.9 stake in Chipotle. Several media outlets were saying 10%. It's actually slightly less than that. But as you mentioned, they are critical or were critical of how the board was operating. And they were saying that they were too close, maybe too cozy with the management and district management at some of these locations. And so this is going to definitely be changing things up, representing, as you said, one third of the board now. So a lot of people are saying, well, one third isn't enough, but I think this is enough to really make a statement. And now that Monty Moran is no longer there, I think Steve Ells really has a lot on his plate as far as changes 
Panthers are concerned. If I were to really guess here, I would say that going forward, Chipotle will not be focused as much on growth as far as expanding the amount of locations that they have. But moreover, they're going to be spending a lot more time looking at budgetary controls and making sure that the locations that they have in place currently are sustainable for the long term. And this has echoed through the statements that Bill Ackman had made earlier in the week. As he said, we look forward to working with the board and management to create sustained value for all shareholders for many years to come. So they're looking at this as a very long-term play and are looking at some possible ways to create more value through what they do already have. Again, creating some more conventional methods as far as advertising is concerned, but making sure the quality of the service at these individual locations is up to par. And as you mentioned, Chipotle is really known for their quality, their quality of ingredients. And if the overall perception, at least from management's perspective, is that they are failing in this regard, this is something they will be having to put some capital into. They have changed some preparation methods, so some of their ingredients may not be as fresh as they were before because of their enhanced protocols with food safety. But these enhanced measures and these third-party procedural inspections are really doing well to ensure that they aren't going to have anything in the future like the E. coli outbreak of this last year. When you look at their investor call that was December 12th of 2016, one thing that Steve Ells mentioned over and over again that kind of speaks to what you were saying regarding making existing restaurants work in a more functional manner is he mentioned not only simplicity, but also refocusing on the guest experience. He feels like the company has gotten away from the focus on the guest experience a little bit over the last few years, and he wants to refocus on that and simplify operations. He mentions that things have gotten too complex at the corporate level, and he wants to make sure and streamline and simplify those operationally, even at the store level as well. And then he talked a little bit about their restaurateur status, which within Chipotle is a way for general managers to be promoted kind of above and beyond their role and also to receive Chipotle stock and greater benefits. But he wants the restaurateur program to be simpler more straightforward and more accessible to general managers than it currently is. So they want to retool the restaurateur program a little bit. They want to simplify operations. And these things are easy enough for any executive to say, but it seems as though they are putting things in place to kind of streamline operations at their existing restaurants. And that's one of several reasons why I think in fiscal year 2017, you're going to begin to see more positive comps from Chipotle. And part of it is because of the changes, and part of it is because it looks like they've hit bottom, and they can't go much lower than where they've been this year. We saw some signs of improvement in the last quarter, not only with the Chiptopia Rewards Program and them seeing financial benefits from that, but also seeing financial benefits from chorizo. And they mentioned that chorizo was a protein that was getting people to revisit Chipotle on a more regular basis. So I'm anxious for this earnings call here in a little over a month to see 
how those different factors continue to play into the final quarter of the year. Because remember, the final quarter of the year also won't have the benefit of the increased sales from the Chiptopia program, which ended as far as gaining rewards on September 30th. But they were having to reimburse a number of people for rewards being earned prior to that point, And that will show up in their quarter four results as well. Keeping along with our theme of positivity, we move on to our second story. Portillo's is looking to expand to new markets and actually just announced plans to open a new location in St. Paul, Minnesota, specifically Woodbury, Minnesota. And this will actually be the seventh state that Portillo's will have a presence in. Portillo's is a little bit of a brief background. They're known for their Chicago-style cuisine. They're very large restaurants, and they were founded in Chicago, Illinois, which is currently where they're headquartered and where they have over 25 locations currently. The company was founded by Dick Portillo in 1963 in Villa Park, Illinois, under the name The Dog House. And it was actually originally a hot dog stand, so this is kind of a feel-good story overall, as you can see how they've expanded so much here in the recent past. But again, they are predominantly in Illinois, and they didn't start expanding out of that state until about 2005 and they expanded westward to California and Arizona. And now currently they are in six states. But again, this will have been their seventh state when they open this Minnesota location in January. As for a little bit more of the company background, they have always been privately held. And in fact, in 2014, they sold to Berkshire Partners, not to be confused with Berkshire Hathaway, but Berkshire Partners is a private equity firm based in Boston with over $11 billion in assets. And they bought the company again in 2014 when they had about 38 restaurants for a reported $1 billion. And some analysts were saying that Portillo's had hit the jackpot because this was a little bit of an overvaluation. But you can see just in the last two and a half years or so, they've grown their number of units by about 31%. So this is really a growth story for Portillo's and they've really been hitting it hard with the brand recognition here as they move into these new areas. Yeah, it no longer looks like such an overpay for Berkshire Partners. Keep in mind that this location that they're opening up is their 50th location, which is one of the reasons why we bring it up here on the Food Focus podcast. As you mentioned, they're in seven states. Not only are they in states that border the greater Chicago area or are nearby the greater Chicago area like Indiana and Wisconsin, but they've also found success moving to areas where Chicago snowbirds might be residing during portions or all of the year. So you've got outlets in Florida and Arizona as well as California. So you see residents from Chicago move or retire to these locations, and that's why they've been able to experience success in these markets that and they're moving to fairly large markets they have 25 of their locations so about half of their locations in the chicago metro area and then 25 other locations elsewhere but to paint a picture if you're not familiar with portillo's of what this company does in the traditional store size the larger locations can sit up to 300 people but on average they sit about 200 to 250 people and each restaurant employs around 200 workers which when you're talking about a restaurant that also has a drive-through that's i think what you could fairly call a semi qsr or a semi quick service restaurant 200 employees is a lot but they need this many employees because of their unit sales their unit sales per location sales are really amazing. When you look at a traditional McDonald's or a succeeding Wendy's or your traditional 
quick service restaurant, you're looking at sales sometimes per unit of around three million, two and a half million in that neighborhood. Chick-fil-A, for example, has an average unit volume of around three million. But Portillo's are said to have an average unit sales volume of seven to nine million dollars. That's one of the reasons why they necessitate the 200 employees per location because they move a lot of product. And much like Chipotle, which we talked about in the first segment, they really do place an emphasis on the customer experience. They decorate their locations appropriately, very much similar to how a Chicago hot dog house, one would think, would decorate. And this St. Paul, Minnesota location will be specially decorated to kind of be befitting of a Prohibition-era restaurant. So a lot of interesting things with this 50th location for Portillo's, but because this isn't a chain that we talk a lot about, they are in a growth phase. And again, they're privately held, so we don't have much on their financials outside of some of the basic financial information and basic generalized information. But they sell this Chicago-style cuisine, and it seems to be catching on nationally. The question is, Leighton, how much white space throughout the company can we fairly say that Portillo's has? Are they simply a niche restaurant that only works in certain locations or can they have some value in markets that don't necessarily have a tie to Chicago? Yeah, that's an extremely good question. And this is something that we were talking about before recording and that they do so well in terms of unit volume. You compare them to the likes of Chick-fil-A, which has an extremely high average unit volume as well, around $3.1 million annually per unit. And then McDonald's behind them at $2.5 million. To compare Portillo's and say that they average between 7 and $9 million, you really have to ask yourself, is this growth going to be sustainable? Or at least, are they going to be seeing this top-line revenue as they move into these brand new locations? But we can say, though, that they're not going to be diluting themselves by entering these brand new markets. It's not like they're oversaturated in a particular market. Even though they do have a higher concentration in the Chicago area, that market's going to remain fairly stable. But the other markets that they're in, we mentioned California and Arizona, you're not seeing continued growth in those areas. So they're seeing success, but they're being very careful with it. So when they enter these new markets, they do a lot of market research and they make sure that they don't already have other locations in these brand new markets. If you're being very careful with it, they're going to have sustainable growth. Another thing to mention here is the square footage overall. These are very large restaurants restaurants between 6,500 and 10,000 square feet for an average Portillo's. Again, if you compare this to a conventional QSR, McDonald's has an average square footage of around 4,000 square feet and five guys for their part has between two and 3,000 square feet. So they're offering more than just a conventional quick service restaurant, Trent. And as you mentioned, they're more of a semi QSR. So they fit into kind of a weird space here and with a drive through, a lot of outdoor seating and a recognition that they really want to be a destination. So with this prohibition theme restaurant, they're going to be attracting people that want to see the insides of these restaurants as well. Not just to have a place to sit down and eat their food like you would a Five Guys, but a place to kind of look around, a place that you can bring your family to. So they really bring it all 
to these areas. And this is something that a lot of areas don't have as a concept like this, a place that is so very large and that can produce a lot of different types of food. You talk about their menu being very diverse. Their menu includes hamburgers, grilled chicken sandwiches, shakes, malts, a lot of different desserts. They specialize in a chocolate cake, in fact, Italian beef and sausages. So they bring a lot to the table here and they also bring on an online business to boot. So for those that are unfamiliar, you can actually go to Portillo's website and get an order of what you would experience within the location. And they actually have the price include two-day shipping via UPS. So a lot going on for Portillo's, but it is a shame that we can't look in too deeply to their financials. We do know, again, that their average unit sales when they were bought in 2014 were about $8 million. A lot to look forward to here. And I actually look to travel to Illinois and experience one of these restaurants for myself. You mentioned their online business. One of the things about Portillo's is because they are growing now and because they hadn't experienced a ton of growth before the last five to six years is they've actually been able to incorporate not only a smartphone app, but also computer-based ordering into what they have. So with a larger business, you find a lot of larger businesses having to go back and reinvest in these programs where Portillo's has kind of done that as they've gone through. And when you look at the price points on their menus, if you pull up an average menu from a Portillo's, you're not paying any more than $8 for any single item. And some entrees start at under $3. So a pretty decent price point for such a large quick service restaurant. Again, you talk about the square footage ranging up towards 10,000 square feet in some circumstances, but I think their e-commerce presence and their presence on mobile devices is going to help them expand and help them cultivate a customer base wherever they end up opening, especially if they just have one to two locations per market. They can keep their average unit sales up as they are right now. Well, we stay in the QSR industry for news out of McDonald's. McDonald's has reportedly teamed up with Uber Eats to service roughly 200 locations in the state of Florida. This comes as more retailers and food service providers look to win over customers with convenience. One of the interesting things about the prices here, they should be around $5 for delivery with Uber Eats. And yes, it is possible, if this is what you're thinking, to have a delivery charge that is more expensive than the meal you order itself. But the real question here, will this work for a company like McDonald's to integrate delivery? Or is McDonald's maybe below the price point of a business where this might be an effective addition? Yeah, that's an extremely good point because you look at Uber Eats, Right now, they deal with a lot of local companies that aren't really big chains. So you see McDonald's really coming in here. And this is why it made a big story in the media outlets and that they are entering into a realm that they hadn't really been in before. But again, Uber Eats really services restaurants in other markets that may just have one or two locations. So this is going to be a different dynamic for them as well. For their part, it's going to be around $5 for a typical delivery. They do not charge a delivery fee. Postmates, for instance, charges $5 plus, typically a 9% fee. So if you are ordering the service, it will be a flat fee for McDonald's no matter how much you buy. 
Uber brings in or Uber Eats brings in the money from McDonald's by charging a percent of the average ticket. So they charge up to 30 percent of a receipt from McDonald's, and that's how they get their money in addition to the five dollar user fee. But you can see that these 200 locations are going to be in the three largest markets in Florida. We're talking about Miami, Tampa Bay, and they're looking actually to be expanding outward more west if this pilot program is successful. McDonald's and other analysts are saying that between 20,000 and 25,000 target locations they want to have this type of service with. So this is going to be a lot of capital to roll this out. But we're talking about an extremely competitive industry that we've been following very closely for a matter of months now. And one recurring theme has been customer service. People want their food and they want it fast. They no longer want to go to a place as a destination like you would see with a BJ's brew house or a Red Robin. They just want to get their food and get it home. Well, this actually brings it home for you. So not only is this going to be another level of laziness for a McDonald's customer, but it really does tell the competition that they're going to be having to move in and provide similar services down the line. You hear talk about Wendy's potentially doing something in the future, although nothing has been planned out or reported. But McDonald's really does have the amount of locations and a lot of capital in order to be successful with something like this. And this really brings a lot of brand recognition and brand awareness to a service like Uber, which has been trying to put forth a lot of money into a service like Uber Eats. You see this very popular service in places like New York and LA, the more concentrated areas that were require more service-oriented programs. This does, however, bring up several points about potentially the quality of the food and the types of service issues that may come along with something like this. You look at where this program is being piloted. You mentioned Orlando, Tampa, Miami. These are places that have significant traffic issues. Sometimes traffic is backed up, and you're likely to see Uber Eats perhaps get more business from McDonald's when traffic is backed up because people don't want to deal with the traffic. So the one benefit McDonald's has here as far as dealing with the traffic is there are such a significant number of locations of McDonald's in these metropolitan areas so that hopefully at least the Uber Eats drivers can deliver the food that's semi-fresh to the person's doorstep. However, it does raise an interesting question. If an Uber driver gets stuck in traffic for 10, 15 minutes, at what point does the food not only become inedible, but at what point is it a poor reflection on McDonald's? You have food integrity issues, and you also have food safety issues, especially if you only have a few locations in a given market. As you talk about McDonald's trying to roll this out to a vast number of their restaurants in the United States, depending on how this pilot program goes in Florida and depending how programs go in other areas. So it does raise some food integrity issues. You know, McDonald's fries and a McDonald's burger, a lot of people might believe that they are best consumed fresh or piping hot. And a lot of people that eat at McDonald's and go through, say, the drive-thru, are going to eat those products likely before they get home, or at least snack on those products before they get home. So oftentimes, even a 10 to 15 minute wait, in some cases, you might see a potential 25 to 30 minute wait in getting these food items, might 
do a disservice to something like a McDonald's fries, for example, or to Chicken McNuggets if those food products happen to get cold before they're delivered. So if you're Wendy's, if you're another QSR, you maybe look at this program and take a wait and see approach because Wendy's has begun to hit quality more than anything in their advertisements. A lot of QSRs probably don't want to take the hit on quality and on perception just for the benefit of having a delivery service that may or may not be used extensively. So there's a lot of unknowns here. We hear a lot about food delivery services really being the next frontier in the fast food or the QSR industry and even in the fast casual industry, but there are so many unknowns and we talk about people not wanting necessarily to spend time at restaurants as much anymore. We also don't know if that's a long-term trend or simply just a short-term trend. It could be in 2017 that traffic counts and in-store traffic counts go up for a lot of restaurants. So a lot of wait and see here. Congratulations to McDonald's for this rollout. But I think a lot of QSRs are going to be looking at this with bated breath to analyze how they're going to approach their own delivery programs. Yeah, just the last couple points here I wanted to make and add on to the things you mentioned here. I am surprised that they're rolling this out to 200 locations. You would think that maybe they would just roll it out to one city, say Tampa, for instance. And so this would be a little bit better way to approach a pilot program. But they are going to have problems. It's not a matter of if they're going to have problems. It's a matter of how prevalent and how serious they are going to be. So, again, the wait-and-see approach is something that a lot of other QSRs might be taking and definitely something McDonald's is going to be doing as they look forward to expanding this program in 2017 and 2018. Well, with that, we move on to the passing of the co-founder of Freddy's frozen custard and steak burgers, Bill Simon passed away this last Saturday after a long-standing battle with cancer. Bill founded Freddy's in 2002 with his brother and a business partner in the Wichita, Kansas area. Freddy's was originally intended to be more of a hobby, but it immediately took off and created a huge following in the Kansas area, and the chain now operates 235 locations in over 30 states. In October of 2013, they just had 100 locations, so Bill Simon has really been at the heart of the business, expanding it to the massive size they are at currently. Yeah, you mentioned 235 locations in over 30 states. The grand majority of those have opened up in the last three years. And Freddy's was a business we talked about just earlier this year on the podcast. And we've discussed the Simons, both Bill and Randy, as being huge drivers behind their growth. For those unfamiliar, Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers has a menu that is very similar to a traditional Five Guys, something along those lines. But they also have a fairly large line of custard. So if you're in the northern United States, you're probably familiar with Culver's. There are other frozen custard chains throughout the country. And Freddy's has been taking up a lot of market share in the Midwest, especially over the last few years. The vast majority of their locations are franchised. So it certainly is unfortunate for Freddy's. And you know, from a business perspective, you don't want to make this all about business, certainly. But from a business perspective, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, Randy Simon, uh, the co-founder and, of course, brother of Bill Simon, and also he's the CFO of Freddy's, said that basically they want to carry Bill's legacy forward. He said that the warm and inviting energy of each restaurant 
will also carry Bill's legacy forward. But a lot of questions surrounding the business after Bill Simon's passing. Who is going to step up and take his spot as the franchise and as the business is still considered by many to be in a growth phase? They see a lot of white space throughout the United States, a lot of possibilities for expansion. A little bit of a background about Bill Simon. Graduated with an accounting degree from Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas, and then worked for a national CPA firm in Wichita, Kansas, and then worked with a Pizza Hut franchise group as well as Rent-A-Center, the popular rent-to-own retailer, before another company bought that group out. Freddy's Frozen Custard still headquartered in Wichita, Kansas, which is where Bill Simon was also located. And an interesting story with Freddy's in that it follows closely along with a few other restaurants that got their start in Wichita, Kansas. White Castle got their start there in the earlier portion of the 1900s. And of course, Pizza Hut was also started in Wichita, Kansas and grew to national prominence from their headquarters in Wichita before uh, eventually being bought out and now of course they're a part of yum brands so a lot of people looking to see where freddy's ends up if they'll remain a privately held company or maybe go to being a publicly traded company or if maybe they'll sell to a different organization but for right now randy simon is certainly concentrated on not only getting past the the grief that he must have after his brother passing after a battle with cancer but also of course the fact that someone that's so important to the growth of freddy's over the last few years Bill Simon, the president and CEO, has passed, leaving a huge hole in the company. Yeah, despite the uncertainty, they do have a really strong leadership team. And as we reported a few months earlier, they had moved locations for their headquarters. So they have a lot more and robust team aboard there. And so I'm sure they're going to be fine going forward. It just is a shame. Bill Simon was only 61 years of age. So I'm sure this took a lot of people by surprise. Well, we've reached the final segment on the Food Focus podcast where we each talk about one item that's new to the food industry or at least new to us that we sampled over the last week. And Leighton, I understand you tried out some uh, dried meat. Yeah, that's right. I tried out Oberto's all-natural slash organic original beef jerky. This was something that really caught my eye because it was on clearance, if I'm being honest here. But you can still get it at your local grocer. A 12-ounce bag typically sells for around $14.98 in price. The interesting thing about this beef jerky here is that it's really good as far as flavor is concerned, but it's actually a little bit spicy as well. On the front of the package, it doesn't say anything about being spicy, but after you try a few, you you begin to acknowledge that it is a little spicy in flavor. It does have a little spice to it, but overall, it did catch my eye because not only was it on clearance, but it is an organic offering, something I've been trying to do with my personal lifestyle. And if you look at the ingredient label, it's pretty simplistic. You don't see a lot of nitrates or anything of that nature. You see organic beef, you see brown sugar, water, sea salt, and natural flavorings, and that's about it. So a very standard product, and to be honest, it tastes as good, if not better, than a conventional product. And so if you were interested in buying this, again, a 12-ounce bag is around $15, and the serving size is about one ounce per bag, which carries around 80 calories, one gram of fat, but 10 grams of protein, something they're very happy about and they promote on the Alberto website. So this is a really good offering, and I recommend our listeners to try it out here. It is a guilt-free offering for this edition of the Food Focus podcast. 
I don't go to a Subway restaurant all that often. I make about two to three trips there per year. But I have been intrigued by the business's recent ad campaigns where they kind of underscore the all-natural aspects of a lot of what they do, talking about trying to help out local communities by purchasing local produce where and when available and investing in local communities. But the other aspect about Subway that caught my eye was the fact that they're now offering rye bread. This is in part so that they could add a true Reuben to their menu. They rolled out a kind of a half Reuben earlier this year that didn't come with rye bread. It simply came with beef and sauerkraut, but they've added sauerkraut now to their cold vegetable bar at Subway locations throughout the United States, and they've also added rye bread. So I got the rye bread on a sandwich. It was actually one of their $3.50 6-inch subs of the day. This was on a Tuesday, so I got their chicken breast sub, which is, again, now all-natural chicken breast, and they really drive home the point that it's all-natural and all-white meat chicken breast. But I got this on the rye bread, and I also got Swiss cheese, which is another new addition to Subway's overall cheese offering. I will say the rye bread was a little bit sweeter than most forms of rye bread. It wasn't quite as dry on the palate as most rye bread is, but as far as getting rye bread at a QSR, it was a fairly strong addition, I found it. And perhaps more than that for Subway, I was able to test drive their app for the first time and order via their app. And it was incredibly smooth and the order was ready for pickup within three minutes. So kudos to Subway on creating an effective app and an effective way to order online. One of the interesting notes about Subway, though, is they've started to underscore the fact that they have franchises available. And in fact, when you go to their website, if you go to their website today, they've got a fairly large green box on the left-hand side of their front page that's above the fold, if you will, that's asking people to apply to own a franchise today. They've also got a link right on their website to restaurants throughout the United States that are for sale. So Subway still, they see themselves as being in an expansion mode. And they're one of the businesses that's making their menu a little bit more complex with more bells and more whistles. You have a greater cheese choice and a greater bread choice than ever before. This is much different from Chipotle, as we mentioned at the top of the show, trying to simplify things going forward. That's one of the advantages that I think Subway has, just an inherent advantage of having limited time offerings and not being viewed as cheap or reaching with them. They're always trying something new, either it's for a different season or just trying something new because they feel like it. They're really able to implement these new offerings in these different markets. And to be honest with you, again, it comes with a positive and a downside in that a lot of people were saying that some of these limited time offerings they really enjoyed, but then they went away. And that really made them depressed. But overall, I think Subway is onto something here, and I am glad that their mobile implementation has worked out well. We reported about four to five months ago that they have been putting more capital forth in the mobile area, trying to really enhance the customer service experience as they feel as though that's going to be the differentiating step forward. It is very interesting if you go onto their website regarding franchise ownership. They've got a number of restaurants for sale listed in, in different areas, some large, some small throughout the country. But it is a very user-friendly website as they continue to try and recruit franchisees. A lot of people forget with all the press that goes to places like McDonald's and Starbucks that Subway is the largest QSR by number of locations in the United States. However, their average revenue per location does lag behind some of those 
other restaurants. Well, that'll do it for our food focus here this week. Be sure and tune in for Retail Focus coming out later this week as we've got news on Rite Aid selling off some locations to Fred's. We'll talk about how we see that acquisition going down and more news regarding Nordstrom stores in the United States. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.